0: Shalom, and welcome to Heretics Standing at Sinai, a podcast for those in or adjacent to the Jewish community who are searching for a place to deepen their spirituality without sacrificing their rationality. I am Rabbi J. Telrav, and each week we have conversations about new ways to exist in the world as an intentional presence and ways of making our lives really mean something. Whether you've been exploring Jewish spirituality for years or this is your first time considering it, we're glad you're here. I've been trying to remind folks what it is that we do here and in short form, we use the book by Rami Shapiro called Open Secrets, that is a presentation of non-dual theology, that meaning a, uh, an experience of God that is intimate but all-encompassing. Non-duality teaches that there is no other being up there in the sky watching us or making decisions about our lives. There is no supernatural explanations for the universe. Reality itself is amazing. It's amazing enough and the explanations that we require are all readily available to us. And this we call God. God is the sum total of the universe, not outside it, not other than it. There's no place where I stop and God begins. The universe spinning and expanding and everything everywhere everyone and every now is an expression of that divine reality it's all an expression of action and I call that action God we look through these letters uh, these fictitious letters each week and we find our own selves in them and this week I am joined by a friend, Mike Markovitz, who has impressed me over and over again as we have worked on projects. When Mike first came to me here at Temple Sinai, he wanted to make sure I knew about an organization that was already near and dear to my heart. He was on the board of Moving Traditions, an organization out of New York that's focused on the healthy, intentional development of teens into adults who are aware of how would you say it?
1: Dedicated to helping teens understand um, their power in the world, mm-hmm. uh, understand who they are personally, especially around their sexuality mm-hmm. and their gender preferences, mm-hmm. um, and how to take that and be present and and active as a Jew.
0: Beautiful. And your time on their board has come to an end, but you've continued in your passion of uh, climate justice. You've organized a group of teens and now are including adults here at Temple Sinai. You've spoken to the congregation a couple times, and you've been pushing the board to really think about the way that the carbon footprint of Sinai is within our reach to address in your day-to-day life. You just shared with me again, I had forgotten, that you are a consultant who works on leadership training and are working with some pretty great Jewish organizations right now as well. So welcome, Mike, I'm really, really glad you're here.
1: I'm glad to be here as well, thanks for having me.
0: And uh, you are a listener of the podcast, so you knew exactly what I was going to ask next, which is, tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you come to be who you are, where you are, and what you are today? Yeah,
1: so my journey as a Jew, So I grew up in Middletown, New York, which is a small town in the Catskills, Uh, one synagogue, uh, which we lived two blocks from. And that one synagogue was conservative, but I'd say it catered to everyone as the singular. Um, I went to Hebrew school and Sunday school and can tell you absolutely nothing that I gained from that experience. We did not do anything at home related to being Jewish other than Passover no Friday night uh, or anything but we were totally Jewish and I knew I was Jewish there were uh, bookshelves filled with books about the Holocaust um, I was bar mitzvahed I went to services more than the other members of my family did Uh, during that kind of age of 11 to 14 or so Um, mainly because I had a great uncle who was kind of the oldest member of our extended family who was the only member of the family who went to services uh, other than for the high holidays and I used to go and sit with him Um, I don't remember ever having a conversation with him but it (laughs) felt really safe and I I often think of the word sanctuary as what I experienced going to services it was a safe good place to be Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't have said that I was religious Um, okay that's the early childhood many other things happened Um, I've been committed and visible about being a Jew my whole life and have never felt connected to anything theologically in relationship to it I'm a cultural secular Jew actively
0: oh that's really fabulous background tell us about what the experience of listening to the podcast has been like for you
1: has- um, yeah it's been complicated (laughs) to listen to. Actually, I lose track of it a lot. And even, you know, there's a, we'll get to the chapter that we're going to discuss. And, you know, there's references back to words that I have no memory of what they mean. Mm -hmm. Um, But I enjoy hearing you think in them. I enjoy getting to know some other members of the congregation better Uh, some of whom I already knew that have been with you. Um, So I enjoyed the interaction more than some deepening philosophical experience.
0: That's great. And I think that that's a great reflection of what happens on any gathering, any explicitly religious gathering at Sinai. Uh, on a Friday night, we've got folks who are there for all sorts of reasons, um, including the interactions. You know, they they are not connecting with the God in the prayer book or the God that they think I'm talking about. And uh, I love that our Jewish tradition has a warm, central place for agnostics and atheists uh, just as much as for theists and, and those who have clear faith. Hmm. Well, the chapter that we're gonna be reading this week is called To Listen and to Love. It is, I think, the longest chapter that, uh, that we've covered so far. So listeners, I hope you'll get yourselves comfortable, settle in, and enjoy the chapter. There are some references to previous uh, vocab in this chapter. Yeah. I will pause briefly to remind folks what, um, what is meant by those words. My dearest Aaron Herschel, thank you for inquiring after my health. I am simply aging, I suppose. The tiredness is part of the process. I had hoped it would pass, but if anything, I'm getting weaker rather than stronger, but not too weak to write to you, my friend. It is quite clear to me that my last letter ended where it should have begun. What are you to do if you wish to walk inward? Maybe I'm beginning to ramble in my old age, or maybe I am just not so eager to tell you everything and risk the end of our conversation. Nevertheless, what indeed are you to do to walk inward? What I'm about to share with you is so simple, so commonplace, and so much a part of your upbringing as a Jew, that you will be surprised that it forms the heart of this inward walking. Several times each day, you recite the Shema, the central affirmation of our tradition. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the one who is all is God, this one is one. And then you continue with the following, and you shall love the one who is all, with all your heart, with every breath, with all you have. And these things that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them carefully to your children. You shall speak of them when you sit at home, when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Keep them before your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your homes and on your gates. Can you see in this paragraph of Torah the secret to lech lecha, You shall go. Can you see here what you are to do to till the soil of your neshama, your soul, and to allow it to breathe the breath of chaya, of life? It is simple to listen and to love. This is the core of my spiritual practice. I listen and I love. Of course, I can almost hear your confusion. What about Shabbat, kashrut, the holy days? These are dear to my heart and part of my life, but they're not the key to the inward walking that we spoke about last time. We both know people whose soul, their neshama, is hard as ice, and yet who carefully observe the Shabbat. To move inward from soul to life, from neshama to chaya, we need a special practice, and this passage of Torah reveals it to us. Let me explain. First, what does it mean to listen? When a loved one asks to speak with you about something important, something precious to her, how do you listen? With your whole being, you turn away from distractions, you focus your attention, you quiet the chatter in your own mind in order to make room for the concerns of another's mind. This is true listening. And more, when you listen in this way, you do so with, without any idea of what you will hear or how you will respond. This is important to realize, my dear Herschelah. If you already know what you will say to the other, there's no need to listen. All you need to do is to wait for an opening so you can say what you intended to say, regardless of what the other is saying to you. This is not listening. When you listen, you do so without preconceptions. Do you see how this connects to our early discussion of lech lecha, of you shall go? You are to move inward and free yourself from what you know in order to respond freely to what the other is saying. So, listening requires self-emptying, the quiet of the neshama, I will tell you how to do this in a moment. First, let me continue with my thoughts of the text itself. Who is the Israel addressed here? Is it just the Jews? I do not think so. Torah is given through the Jews to the world and must address more than our people alone. Yisrael means one who struggles with the divine Yisrael. And that can mean people of any religion and none. So the Torah is speaking to all who seek God and says to them, listen. And if you listen, what will you hear? The unity of God as all in all. This is what is meant by God is one. Not that God is singular rather than plural, but that there is only one reality, and that reality is God. Listening, then, reveals the absolute shleimut, the wholeness of God. But now what? Can you stay in that place of listening, which is chaya, really living? Can you stay in chaya and not return to neshama, the place of gentle soul? On the contrary, when you truly hear and realize, and know that God is all in all, you naturally return to the world of Bria, this place of material truth, the world of competing nishamas, because this too is God. Hearing the oneness of God returns you to the world of Bria, the everyday reality of seemingly separate things, and your soul consciousness that accompanies it, you know that all is God, even your soul. So there's no need to reject anything, especially your soul. So you return, but you return changed. Here's how you're changed. The Shema is followed by the next sentence, Ve'ahavta, which means you shall love. We're used to reading this as a command. You must love. But how can God demand love? Love is a feeling, and feelings are uncontrollable by the will. They come, and they go, and there's not much we can do about them. Demanding that we feel one way all the time is to ask of us the impossible. So what is the meaning of you shall love? It isn't a command. It's a consequence. Don't read you must love. Instead, read you will love. In other words, if you listen and hear the unity of God as all reality, then you will love God as all reality and all reality as God. This is the transformation of your soul. This is what happens when neshama is tilled by spiritual practice. You engage the world with love. You feel the unity of God in your heart You teach your children and all children the nature of this love. You speak of it when sitting, walking, lying down and getting up. These are the four basic postures of any human being, meaning that this love will shape all of your doing in the world. The doings of your hands will reflect the quality of your listening by expressing the depth of your loving. Your face will radiate love as a jewel radiates light. And then, there is this business about the doorposts and gates. So wonderful, what are doorposts? They are the pillars that allow you to enter from one room to another in your home. Each is to be marked in a way that reminds you to listen and to love. This is the purpose of placing a mezuzah on each doorway of those rooms in which you live. Think of this, place a mezuzah on the doorpost of the kitchen and make sure that love is the main ingredient in the food you cook. Place one on the bedroom doorpost and remember that true intimacy comes from listening. Each room has its sacredness. Honor it with listening and loving and help remind yourself to do so by placing a mezuzah on his doorpost. And what about the gates? The gates are where you meet the rest of the world. Your home is for intimates and friends. The gates are for strangers. Only once does Torah say, love your neighbor. But love the stranger, Torah says dozens of times. It's not so difficult to love those close to you, but our natural reaction to the stranger is fear. Torah challenges us to replace fear with love. And to remember to do so, you must imagine each encounter as a gateway to love and place a mezuzah on that moment to remember to listen and love. I hope you're following me in this, Herschelah. It's so important that you see what this inward walking can do. And now let me explain how to do it. The point is to listen. And to listen, you must be comfortable and quiet. Find a comfortable place to sit. Do not cross your legs or your arms, but sit upright with your feet flat on the floor and your hands resting, palms down on your thighs. Close your eyes. Breathe at whatever rhythm your body needs to breathe. Don't move. Now listen. What do you hear? All kinds of noise, I'm certain. This is not a problem. The problem arises if you allow yourself to become distracted by the noise. Here's how to avoid that distraction. As you breathe in, say to yourself, Shema. As you breathe out, say to yourself, Yisrael. Breathe in, Adonai. Breathe out, Eloheinu. Breathe in, Adonai. Breathe out, Echad. That's all there is to it. Breathe and recite the Shema. Slowly, you'll center into a quiet place where the noises within and without do not capture your attention. In time, you'll find that the space between inhalation and exhalation lengthens. You're not holding your breath, but you simply have less need to breathe. Your breathing slows and softens, and with it, your mind does the same. When you reach this place, There's no need to recite the Shema. Just breathe and listen. Just listen and love. If your mind wanders, return to the recitation of the Shema. When you're quiet again, be silent. There's a wonderful teaching in Psalms that captures the essence of this practice. In Psalm 46, it says, be still and know that I am God. To be still is to listen. To listen is to know. And to know is to love. Do this twice a day for at least half an hour each time and you will find your soul softened by your life and your life transformed by listening and love. Bishalom. Oh, so, Mike, I gave you a couple of chapters that you might pick from for today's conversation and you chose this one. Can you... Can you think aloud a little bit about what made you choose it and what what you thought about it?
1: Sure. Um, I'm a listener. And so that spoke to me uh, when I read it. And I think there's tremendous power in listening. I think too many of us, too much of the time, think that the way to make a difference in the world is by talking and that listening is as powerful, if not more powerful. Um, So that really appealed to me and loving, engaging the world with love and love the stranger. And I was thinking, love those who disagree with us. That That was what appealed to me. What didn't work for me in this, which will not be a surprise, is all the part about God you know, so I, I saw it more about how to be in the world with people, listen and love people. I did not get that, you know, if you listen, what will you hear? The unity of God. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Great, great if you do.
0: Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, so what I know about you is that you're a tireless warrior on behalf of a planet who can't speak for herself. Um And I wonder whether you would apply the word love to the planet.
1: Absolutely, positively. Mm -hmm. And the people of it. And all the other species Mm -hmm. of it.
0: Yeah. And I think, and and I'm not trying to convince you here, but I think what Rami Shapiro in this book and other non-dualists try to do is to undo some of the baggage around the word God. Because what I hear is that God is all of it. God is the planet. God is the universe. God is me and you. And I have spent the last years undoing the messaging of my childhood, which is God as some supernatural power, something outside of nature. And I, I actually resonate with a lot of what you're saying, that if we're talking about that element of God, I, I don't know what to do with it either. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I understand and appreciate what you just said. It still isn't what resonates for me. Again, just going to this chapter, I want to listen to you because I want to listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> right? And and the next person and the next person uh, because I want to know you and understand your perspective and and then the build relative to this is which uh, he says basically is and I've experienced this over and over and over again in my life as I get to know someone I fall more and more in love with them and that's to me being human and kind of the natural way of being human
0: yeah, when he was talking about that, I couldn't help think about the way that Martin Buber has presented it as I, thou. Are you familiar with some of his teaching?
1: Um, from too long ago, yeah. so not that I remember. That's
0: okay. It, it's what you're saying, that when we just run through our lives, everybody and everything around us are tools for us to utilize. Yeah, They're it's. They are just, you know, we don't, we don't stop to really look at, and certainly not to love, but when we stop and we really listen and we really open ourselves to them, we see complexity and beauty. And this is not just humans, this is the planet, and this is this is truth. What emerges is love. And that's when you have a more potent interaction. Hmm. And and you leave changed. You know, your relationship with that reality is never again the same. I really liked that. He he did say it at some point, you listen. Uh, And, how did he say it, Um, you return after that experience, but you return changed. I like that a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be so passionately committed to the causes that you are? Why are you such a a champion for the earth?
1: Well, not just for the earth. You know, know, also at the temple I've been very involved in the work on addressing racism, Mm -hmm. And I lead that work in Stanford, uh, the Stanford community more broadly, as well as lots of other, like I've been an activist my whole life. So you could say takuno olam. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of Judaism that I grabbed hold of and ran with. Um, But, you know, if I put it in the context of this chapter, too, is how can you not find ways to try and make a, a difference to preserve it uh, in its best possible shape. You know,
0: Experientially, so. that makes so much sense to me. How is it that so much of the world seems to have missed that message? I think
1: we're disconnected, right? So we, I mean we pass the homeless person on the street, right? And we don't stop and notice there's homeless people on the street. We hurry to get to where we're going and, and, and many of us try not to even see that that person's there. Mm-hmm. Um, that isn't, I'm not saying that that means we should stop and, you know, do something in that moment but it's being connected to the reality of what's going on in the world, Mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, do we know that um, there was massive flooding in Nigeria that displaced hundreds of thousands of people and ruined the agriculture? You know, do we take in the information to understand? And, you know, I would say that there's not a diabolical force out there, so I don't believe in that. But we've been systematically trained to disconnect. And so it's got to be a conscious effort, which is again why I like mm-hmm. this piece, you know, which kind of went to silent meditation mm-hmm. as uh, as a remedy, which might be for some. Yeah. I actually don't do silent meditation myself, but it's but it's in the same ilk of hear what's actually happening in the world. Yeah. Take in what's actually going on. Don't be closed off.
0: And I think what I'm hearing you say is that if you open yourself to the person on the street or the climate catastrophes that are increasing in frequency, you, you would almost, I mean, for you not to feel then compelled to at least feel, if not act, you'd have to be working really hard to close off some part of yourself. Right. And I think that we have. I think you're exactly right. We have definitely been trained to close off some part of that self. I go through windows of time where I get overwhelmed by the news. Right. And I find myself needing to take a break. You know, whether it's a week or sometimes longer, to say I can't listen to this cycle any longer because it's damaging my soul. Have you you found that to be... I
1: I understand that issue. I think we need ways to process what's happening so that we can continue to stay open to what's going on in the world. Mm. Okay, mini example. Please. So uh, you made reference to the fact that I've been, um, uh, I'll say leading, although uh, whether that's actually the right word or not, this group at the temple uh, focused on the climate So three teenagers and I went to Hartford uh, a couple weeks ago for a lobbying advocacy day for climate legislation. Mm. And we went hopeful and uh, excited. We had a great day. We talked to legislators. We learned a lot. Uh, I think we built better bonds even amongst the four of us. I certainly felt more connected to the three of them afterwards. Um, It was a great day. What legislation did Connecticut pass relative to climate this year? Basically next to nothing. So we had a meeting of our climate and so we met, uh, this is Friday, we met Wednesday night just two nights ago and I had thought about it for exactly in this context and I know I felt really disappointed and so I said a little bit, but then I gave everybody a chance to reflect. What was your experience? What is it like to you to hear the news that nothing happened as a result of our effort? And one of the teenagers said, I was really disappointed. I thought, how could they not do something? I'm really, really disappointed about this. Well, of course, right? But my belief is that if you connect with the disappointment, feel the disappointment, that will give you the strength mm-hmm. to be hopeful tomorrow and take the next action tomorrow. If you don't feel the disappointments, the discouragements, if you let those pile up on you, mm-hmm. then you become resigned.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I'm hearing what you're saying, and I'm connecting it to the chapter we read in that uh, listening is in large part outwardly focused, uh, listening for other human beings, listening for the call of the universe. But you could also turn it inward. And what I'm hearing you describe is listening carefully to your own internal truth and naming and saying, disappointment is what I feel and validating it, allowing it, perhaps capturing it for, for some higher purpose, but not necessarily. Sometimes we just are. And honoring ourselves in our disappointment, in this case, uh, is a great way of also honoring the universe. We're complex beings who get disappointed, or get angry, or get sad, or any number of other range of experiences. Uh, In my language, that happening, uh, and I'm using now uh, Rami Shapiro in different places, that happening is the happening of all happenings. So the disappointment that's happening is real, and uh, and it's part of the whole. I would say God. No one else needs to.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: I'm not pushing. <laughs> uh. Um. Do you um do you have any relationship to any liturgical expressions? Uh, you mentioned um, you grew up with the seder. Do you remember singing things like Dianu or the Four Questions? Yeah. Well, I even.
1: Yeah, yes, but I even. You know as I was reading um, the Shema right I mean I said that over and over and over and over again and and as I was reading it here I was actually almost remembering the Hebrew you know in my mind and the tune that I had learned and repeated you know 55 years ago yeah right and um, so yeah so yes, I feel connected to that, and to this paragraph in particular, because that is such a. It was repeated so many times; you couldn't not internalize it, and and. So and I'm sometimes. guessing
0: that the the theology of the Shema, is not where your value is found. It's no. the nostalgia of the Shema, the tradition of it? Yes. Am I using the right words? Yeah,
1: I think so. Yeah, definitely not the, you know, if you had quizzed me before I had read the paragraph and said, hey Mike, you know, you say the Shema whenever you go to services. At one point you went to services a lot. What does it mean? I probably, uh, I don't remember. <laughs> but, yeah. So yes, it's more of the familiarity yeah. uh, and the I would say the connection that I felt to my synagogue 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. which is a positive.
0: Happens a lot. Well, a lot is relative. That I'll be with someone who's really close to the end of life, uh, advanced stages of dementia especially. Uh, Sometimes they're not communicating any longer. And in those situations, one of the tried-and-true techniques that clergy long before me utilizes to bring back music from Mm -hmm. our tradition Uh, and it is amazing it is overwhelming and emotional and so telling how often somebody's lips will start moving you know they haven't communicated perhaps in weeks and you start singing, Hine Matovu Manaim, and they join in. Or, Oh, say Shalom Mimromov, or Shema Yisrael. And it's just the most unbelievable way of touching someone's earliest identity. You know, the Shema has nothing to do with God for you and your identity, but right. man, it is there at your core.
1: Yeah. I mean, the other. The, this is not where you were going, but something else that it makes me think of, which is not really this chapter, is how hard it's been as an adult to have the tunes change. Mm.
0: Oh my God,
1: oh, uh, I, I Can't can't my and I hear <laughs> this.
0: It's an impossible <laughs> yeah. task because what I think what you're describing is such a, uh, a an exceedingly personal relationship to the to the. Right experience. So unless someone were to have grown through the exact same narrative as you, it's now been wrapped into the collective, which is the Jewish people. It's no longer yeah. Mike Markovitz's uh, Judaism. Right. Uh, and so I lovingly have to uh, explain to folks why it's not possible for us to do the service that you are wishing for. That service yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, huh. I heard a cool teaching about the Shema that I want to offer, uh, I'd never come across this before, and it was it was brought by Art Green, who's become a really important teacher of mine in book form. I've never met him, um, and he was he was paraphrasing the Zohar, which is a, a mystical text from the okay. you know seventeen hundreds. Um, and he it, the Zohar suggests that we read the Shema incorrectly. And uh, I'll have to do a little Hebrew explanation here to, to make it clear. But what we read is, Shema Yisrael, listen, Israel. I'll leave that alone with Jewish people or God wrestlers, however you want to translate it. Listen, all of you, Adonai Eloheinu, which means this this entity we call Adonai is our God. And then the third clause is Adonai Echad, and that entity, is one or oneness or all of it or however you want to translate it but the Zohar says no no no. you got it wrong it should be read like this Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad and what it means is uh, I don't know if you can hear this listeners but the thunder that just clapped behind us is so beautiful so what the Shema teaching suggests is that we should be reading listen all of you um, who care before I came into the world, there was oneness, Adonai. And then I come into the world and now I create a relationship for myself with the universe, Eloheinu. And then I die and I move on out of this world and it goes back to a oneness that doesn't really matter about how I experience it. We go back to Adonai and then we finish with a statement of, it's all oneness. You know, None of us are the center of the experience so we we should recite Shema Yisrael Adonai there was Elohenu, there is Adonai there will be again Echad just oneness and for me that's been such a powerful reframing of the of the words themselves something i can really get behind i take a lot of personal comfort in diminishing my own centrality in the story uh it it's very comforting to me to know that Uh, I am just one of an endless number of stories, Mm -hmm. every one of them precious, no one of them more precious, whether we're talking about dogs or apes or trees, my story is not more precious than the tree that's being rained on right now. Uh, and I, I love that.
1: I'm, I'm thinking about what thoughts I have in Mm -hmm. relationship to that. Take your time. Um, I mean I do resonate with the with the you know there are so many and I'm just one no better nor worse um, than anyone else or anything else Um, so the next thought that I have in relationship to that rabbi is I worry about it relates back a little bit to what we were talking about I worry about passivity in people and, you know, I am an agent in the world. You know, I do get to make choices every day. You make choices every day. I want to honor my humanness, my ability, my capacity to act in the world.
0: Art Green's prescription is the next step from what Rami Shapiro just gave us today. That is, when you stop and you force your eyes open and you experience what you and I have just been discussing, the next step, which Rami says, is love. Art Green says, once you love, how can you stay passive? Right. How can you not feel compelled to work and I think that that's for me been the extension I heard from you about that Tikkun Olam piece it was transmitted by your parents and your upbringing using different language but the same sense of obligation is one that weighs heavily on the all well, of the awakened person The you know I guess we'll say woke of the woke <laughs> person when we wake up how can we pretend that the truth is otherwise right and i think it's what i heard you say a while ago that people are yes. disconnected
1: yeah
0: and it's easier to stay disconnected if you don't look into the eyes of the other you can pretend that i'm not causing them enormous pain or uh or being yeah. a part of uh, enormous un- injustice
1: oppression thrives on disconnection okay mm-hmm. whether that oppression is racism or sexism or homophobia or whatever it is, oppression can't live when we're connected. Mm -hmm. And, and it just, you know, it's, it's an act of, well, if oppression is one end, liberation is the other. So working, taking active steps to connect is an act of liberation.
0: Gosh, I wish I could remember who, who said that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Hmm. Uh, that might have been Elie Wiesel. Uh, some of you out there know who I'm talking about and will correct me. <laughs> um, and you just so beautifully articulated what he was saying here, too. You sit quietly and you listen to yourself. Then you put mezuzahs on your door so that everywhere you go in your in your immediate circle, you are... Um, you're, remembering and loving. And then on your gates, as you leave your space and go out into the world, you have to maintain the same level of engagement uh, and commitment. And if you have already practiced listening and loving, it's gonna be a natural extension.
1: Uh. And, And just, we said this earlier too, but it builds off again here. Listening and loving the stranger the one you know, and I think of this in our political context here in the United States, you know, or in the world in terms of, you know, the different strife is, is to actually listen and love those who are not from our group. Not oh, from Oh no, our... no,
0: no. See now you're making it you're making it practical. Now you're putting <laughs> the rubber on the road. I, I don't want to just go into the real world, Mike. You know, I'm now each listener has to stop and think about the person they hear on the news who infuriates them, who makes them, who holds the complete opposite views that they know are right, and how angry it makes them. And you're asking us to actually love that person? Yeah, you are. Yeah,
1: I am. And um, yeah. that doesn't mean you have to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not giving any specific prescription of what that love needs to look like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right. That is exactly. But we can think about political figures today that are in the news or whatever. What happened to them? Mm -hmm. You know, what happened in their lives to create the points of view and the behaviors that they demonstrate today? Well, in my mind, clearly they were badly damaged, Mm -hmm. you know, through whatever mechanisms around them, family, school, religious institutions whatever yeah and, all of that that's right you know and um how will that person recover yeah. you know ever get out of the behaviors and attitudes that they have only by you and i moving in their direction with a listening and loving attitude mm-hmm that would give them the space to move through.
0: And what, what courage you are asking of the loving individual, because to approach the other who exhibits the opposite of love, whether it's indifference or something darker, uh, to approach that person is really risky. There's a lot of vulnerability in that. Yeah. Uh, if you don't trust that they are going to receive your open-heartedness, then you are positioning yourself potentially for quite a bit of harm. Yeah,
1: I, I get that, and yeah, it's so. What? So I feel like I've had that experience mm-hmm. and have practice at that. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's hard.
0: What does it look like? What advice uh, do you offer to the listener who wants to do it and just is so fed up with with their experiences of it?
1: Okay. Well, my dad was a very difficult individual. He has passed away. And and he would say really rotten things to me, my sister, my mom, and about people in the world. And to remember, I think this was true in your generation, maybe not, um, in the back of comic books they used to advertise the decoder ring. Oh, yeah. OK. so So basically, I invented a decoder ring in my mind, so that I could say that when my dad was berating me about not having done what he wanted me to do, I could put it through the decoder ring and say, he wants what's best for me. He loves me. He's doing the very best he can to think about and help me right now. Now. Without the decoder ring, <laughs> I was one lost guy, and it took me many years to develop that decoder ring. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot of work to get from what ostensibly was coming at me to an interpretation of it that is actually true.
0: First of all, thank you for sharing that. That's powerful personal and I really hope that everyone listening understands what's the implication here. That is you're suggesting that when we approach somebody who is risky for us, the decoder ring allows us to assume the best, to to start with that that message, that deep inside, whether it's an ashama, a soul, or or some other word that is more comfortable for for whoever's using it, that there is something pure inside. It was damaged along the way. The communication skills were lost. uh, Whatever explanation the decoder ring helps us find, if we look into the eyes of the other and we love them first, it will allow us to manage the risk and potentially the abuse in much more Productive, constructive ways is a really beautiful message. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Mike, I loved this. What a great conversation. Uh, I'm so grateful. Uh, maybe even more so because the surface presentation of this book is about God. And that doesn't speak to you. Mm-hmm. And yet, you still accepted my invitation to sit here and have the conversation. You actually approached me and said, "I'd be willing," uh, yeah. which I thought was so great. You're uh, you're drinking from a mug here that says "Hineni," uh, which means "Here I am." I'm uh, <laughs> I'm ready, and I think that that really expanded and deepened this this whole process. There's someone listening who feels exactly alike when it comes to God, and I'm so glad they got to hear your voice.
1: Well, thank you, and. I've enjoyed the conversation, too, and glad that I raised my hand and that, I, that I'm that i here with you.
0: Well, I'm really glad that all of the listeners have also spent that time with us. As we got started, Mike acknowledged that he is somewhat soft-spoken, so if you had any trouble hearing the, the conversation, the transcript of today's uh, discussion is in the box uh, below that you can click on. You can also find links to other previous episodes, and if you haven't caught up, there are some really wonderful conversations there, too. Um, I told Mike that one of the the holdups in having weekly uh, uh, publishing of these episodes is finding people to talk to, so I'll reiterate my invitation if you're listening and thinking, I have some thoughts here then I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to have you come sit with me. I'll come to your home if it's easier, and we'll have a conversation like Mike and I did today. If you enjoyed this and you want to be notified of new episodes as they come out, you can click on the subscribe button, and be sure to share this this podcast with someone that you know is going to also enjoy exploring their spirituality, too. Until next time, all you heretics out there, stand proud.